Uh, welcome to On the Bench. This is Brendan Sinone. I got Josh Newberg with me and a very, very special guest. Uh, I, I'm trying to figure out whether I should do a thorough ball washing or just say his name. I'm just going to say his name because I think everyone knows him. It's okay. Jeff Jeff Cameron. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, gentlemen, and uh, good day to you both. I, I will, you know, it's weird. In a weird way, it's an honorable thing that happens these days where uh, I get asked to be on podcasts, and and the buildup is, um, I think, fitting, or it, it's sort of commiserate to uh, somebody who's old. So it's like, Every time there's like this fully engaged, hey, can you believe we got this old son of a bitch to come on the show? Like it's it's weird. It just lets you know more than anything else that you've been doing something for a very long time. To to your credit, Jeff, like it's it's both like you're qualified and and you've adapted too. like you you mentioned before that we started recording. I think you said 48 years old. Is that where you're at? 48? Yeah, I'm, I'm 48 years old. That's correct. But like I could listen to you and think he's like thirty years old. Uh, so your your vibe, your hip, you're with it. You know what the kids are talking about. Your your old man get off my lawn uh, vibe is relatively minimal. Yeah, I well I credit Tom Lang for that, and I credit um, the fact that I, I'll be honest with you, I was really late to mature, and that was bad uh, for me in my youth. But I think it's good for me uh, as an older, as a person approaching 50, uh, I still feel young. I still, I gravitate towards people, uh, whether it's friendships or in the business that are, uh, that are younger and vibrant. Um, I still have a lot of energy, you know, I mean, I, I and I have to, cause I got a 12 year old and I'll credit my kids too. I got a 12 year old and a nine year old. Both my boys are forever trying to kick my ass in something. <laughs> and so I just, I, I, you got to keep up, man. You got to do the right thing. So maybe that's what it is. I just, uh, I'm kind of young at heart, young in mind, I guess. But uh, I, every time I say something that is a little get off my lawn esque, I can see the look on Tom Lang, my producer's face, <laughs> like, oh, dude, that's uh, that sounded a little old, dude. <laughs> you're you're going to have to worry. You're going to have to worry that Tom's going to be getting in that like that age yeah, group because Tom, yeah, Tom's yeah. pushing thirty, right? Oh, he's over thirty. Oh he's God, over thirty. Tom's yeah, yeah Tom. Uh, Tom is thirty-three. Tom's pre- Tom's approaching mid-thirties. Um, but yeah, so so you know what? He, here's the thing. Um, I I think that if you just you know remain, uh, I think vigilant and excited to do your job and and you stay current, uh, then you can avoid a lot of that stuff. I mean, some things are inevitable, um, but but there are still others that you can realize. Like, all right. Uh, this is kind of the collective mindset of today's youth or those that are, and then you can bring to the table a little something different and reflect about what that was like in your early days and what energy you had. And when I started, and I know we're not going to talk a lot about, you know, when I started or whatever, but when I started, I hated, hated might be a strong word. I, I really loathed the, the older people in the business that I encountered who would talk so frequently about yesteryear and the way things were, or that they, you know, they kind of, uh, I think acquiesced and, and, and didn't question enough those that were revered. There's those that were idolized. And I'm not saying that those folks didn't have something to give and weren't in fact legends, uh, and, and weren't, uh, worthy of reverence. Uh, but, but they also, nobody, nobody in the business, nobody, whether it's this business or coaching, uh, really any uh, realm, is devoid of criticism. So, 
if you see something that is antiquated or uh, it's it's you know a, a foolish uh, decision uh, from somebody in a position of power, then I think you kind of if you're in press, if you're in the journal, if you're a journalist or you're a talk show host or you're somebody who gives an opinion for a living, whatever it might be, I think you gotta say it. Um, so I don't know. That's a meandering way to talk about staying young, I guess. Well, it's also appropriate, Jeff, because a lot of the questions that we have for you that Josh and I have kind of outlined and that we wanted to get to are going to be about adapting and um, not just for you professionally, but but some of the men that you've covered throughout your career. That'd be Jimbo Fisher, Willie Taggart. I know you spoke with Josh before about your coverage of Bobby Bowden, which is really when you cut your teeth, and that was on the big three roll-up. So we don't want to go too much into that. It's about more like how things have changed. Like it's even like in the past decade. Uh, and so the, my meandering question now for you, which Josh loves when I ask our meandering questions, uh, this is about you professionally with seminal headlines. I know we talk about the Jeff Cameron show, which you do every single day. Uh, what's interesting to me about Seminole Headlines, man, one, it it's a show that I tune into when things are going wrong. I find it comforting, and largely it's your voice and perspective, but it's with the War Chant guys too and, and the dynamic you all have. Uh, but how did that how did that show start, and how has it evolved to where, to me, it seems almost more like a podcast. I view it in my mind as a podcast. I know it's not. I know it's on the radio, but it seems so well-equipped for the podcast medium now. So I, I guess, how did the idea of seminal headlines come up and how did, has it evolved over the years? It's pretty organic. Um, it is basically a podcast. Uh, so a peek behind the curtain for those that don't know it, we typically record on Tuesday and Wednesday. I'm talking about myself, Iris Chaffel and Corey Clark. And we, because our schedules are a little different um, and, and it's tough to get all three of us together at the same time, um, in the beginning, certainly, it, w- it was more so that way. We, we would just we would agree to come in in the mornings and record it and then hand it over to a producer and they would chop it up. So basically what would happen is it'd be the three of us in a studio talking and we really wouldn't take breaks. Um, and that's why it sounds more like a podcast, because it's just a free flowing conversation. In truth, I think all good radio is going in that direction anyhow. Uh, I've done that with my show. Um, We do have hard outs. There are times that you have to take breaks, um, obviously, to let the commercials play and pay the bills, as they say. But we don't adhere to too many of those hard outs. There's a lot of floating that goes on, and I get criticized for that by, like, old school, speaking of what we were just talking about, old school radio people, um, but, but that's a different subject altogether. Um, I, I, I love the format of a podcast. I like what we're doing right now, just the ability to have a conversation and let people listen in on it. Um, and so going back to some of the headlines, when we started, it was sort of this, uh, it was really Ira and I, Ira's been on my show, uh, in some form or another for, for over a decade. He, I had him on as a guest when he first kind of joined the beat, um, and he was with the Democrat and and I was, uh, you know, I just wanted a guest, a frequent guest from from outside the building um, who was on the ground over there. Because a lot of things would happen while I was doing my show from three to six. And so, you know, if there's something was breaking over at Florida State and I'm in the studio, I needed to have somebody come on that I could trust and that I thought was thorough and did a good job. And, and I run and I hit it off right from the beginning. And so he started coming on and it became an every Monday thing and it still exists. Well, then Corey joined the beat and he and Ira were already really good friends. 
And I got to know Corey Clark through Ira that way. And we all really just hit it off from the beginning. We have similar sensibilities, uh, sense of humor. Uh, you know, there's a level of absurdism that we kind of engage in. We, we aren't afraid to, to rip each other, but also I think there's genuine love amongst the three of us. Um, we hang out. I mean, the three of us do. I mean, not, you know, obviously we all have families and, and we all have busy professional lives, but when we get a chance, um, especially in the off season uh, over the years, we would hang out. So I think it's built a sort of camaraderie organically where we just kind of grew to be good friends and, and we play off each other pretty well. And, you know, you, you never know if that's going to happen or not. Um, there are people that I'm friends with that I really probably couldn't do a show with just because our styles wouldn't mesh. Uh, but the three of us do. And so, it, that show really, as we were talking more and more, Ira said, you know, we should do one where we have the three of us talk. And then we just did it one day. And the next thing you knew, and that show originally had, um, uh, we had, it, had, we had this idea that we we're going to do it three or four days a week, I think. Uh, and Jim Lamar was originally on the show as well. Um, former sports editor, of Tallahassee Democrat friend of mine as well. And Jim's old school. He's, he's even older than I am in terms of covering the program. Uh, but Jim's schedule wasn't working out as well, and he was, I think, on the cusp of, um, you know, moving in a different direction anyhow. And so Corey took over for Jim Lamar, and the next thing you know, we just were off and running. And um, I actually think that one of the best elements of the – I think what one of the things that works for us is, is what I should say is that we only do it one day a week. I, I, I think it would lose something if we did it more than that. Um, there's a sense that we're catching up and that we're able to kind of – big picture over two hours, look at all the things that just happened over the last four or five days and that are about to happen in the coming uh, two or three days. So that's sort of the way that works. And I think it works mm -hmm. perfect because it's a little bit of leave them wanting more. That's interesting. I was going to ask you if you thought that, you know, doing a, a show with two buddies, if you could expand that, and I don't mean to speak for anybody in their current jobs, but why, I mean, why wouldn't you want to maybe do a, a, a bigger show with those two guys? I wouldn't be against it. I think we, I'm not sure. One of the things that happens in that show that I like is there is a freshness to it. Um, and a genuine, um, sense of uh, excitement when the three of us get together. It's, uh, it's, it's just that, you know, so Corey, splits his time um, living in Atlanta and Tallahassee. And mm -hmm. some of that is family reasons. Some of that is just work, but whatever. So it's never been a real possibility. And then Ira, of course, um, not unlike me, is married and he has three kids. And so we just, unless we see each other professionally, say when football is actually happening and we're all covering it um, or whatever the sporting event might be, we really don't see each other prior to that show. So when we see each other, it's like old friends having dinner. You're just excited. Like, oh, look at that. There's Teddy. There's Willie. Yeah, we're going to sit down and have a good time. And that's kind of how we feel. And I like that. I, I think that energy is apparent when you listen to the show. And I would worry that if it was a daily thing, just human nature, you see somebody every day, you're not overwhelming. You know, you don't feel a sense of overwhelming appreciation necessarily as absence makes the heart grow fonder. Right. So. I, I really do think that there's a little something captured there in, in terms of the energy by us only doing it one day a week. I yeah. think we could do it three days a week. I mean, we all talk all the time and, 
you know, we're texting each other every day and uh, we're all on the same page and mm-hmm. we have our debates and we shared laughters and all that. We could do it, but it is different. Um, and, and so I, I, and I also, it, it requires me to flex a little bit different muscle or, or work on a different muscle as a host doing that show than my own show. And so I like that element too, because I can kind of stand back and hand over sort of the, not only the entertainment responsibility, uh, but the kind of the art of uh, shaping an opinion and a talking point to somebody else, to two other guys who are perfectly capable of taking the ball and running with it. So I I had one last seminal headlines question before we start pivoting into uh, what I think will be some fun Jimbo talk. How how long, Jeff, Mm -hmm. did it take for – for chemistry between you guys. So, so I know like for our podcast, like Josh, what's it been like probably a year and a half for us to kind of fi- figure out like our format, our voice. Uh, it takes a, a while, but you guys all three being friends, uh, how, how long did it take to where you realize, okay, we got something, something cooking here. We got something special. Not long. I don't think it took very long at all. I, I think the first few times we did it, understanding people's cadence and rhythms and how they speak and how they make their points and how they express themselves is very important. You have to learn that or else you're talking all over each other. And that takes a little time. Um, you know, who's more subdued, who's a little bit uh, more laid back, who's over the top boisterous. That'd be me. Who's, um, you know, who's, who's forever looking for the punchline. Who's forever looking for a joke to drop in. Uh, childish or not, that'd be Corey Clark. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the way that works is that you get it in a rhythm because you understand each other's rhythm and you understand uh, sort of the template for how a segment's going to go based on who brought up the point, who's making the point and who's going to respond next. Uh, I do think it helps and it can be very difficult. And it's a, rec- you know, the, the, the extra element of doing a podcast when you can't be together, when you're not, looking at each other in a room per se is, is more difficult. Um, it can be done clearly, uh, but, but it requires uh, another level of uh, kind of understanding each other's uh, cadence, if you will. Um, but um, it didn't take long because we were all in a room together and that's no different than all, all of us being out to, you know, out to dinner and having a few drinks and making each other laugh. It was the same sort of thing as sitting at a dinner table and laughing. All right, so so let's get to some Jimbo talk here. And you started before we started to record, Jeff. You actually mentioned the anecdote that I was going to intro the Jimbo conversation with, and that was a story that you shared on the air multiple times, and that's interviewing Jimbo when he was first hired uh, from LSU to come to Florida State as the OC, and he's moving. And I'll let you share that story, but I'll, I'll say this, Jeff. It made me like. When I heard that story in hindsight now, especially like it made me kind of sad when you look at the contrasting the the energy and excitement and wonderment he had to take the FSU job and then how it all ended. And I'm curious, like how you look back at that story. If you want one, paint the picture for our audience, please. But then two, how you look at it now in, in hindsight. Yeah, well, there's a lot to unpack there in terms of the totality of his time here at Florida State, where we started and where we ended. You're right about that, Brendan. Um Yeah, so I was going on the air that afternoon, and there was a lot of buzz about the fact that Florida State, it was obvious if you set the stage, we're we're, we're in the lost decade, and um, things are going south, and and, and I'm, you know, very concerned. I'm on the air every day talking about the the, the program going in the wrong direction, which was very controversial because you're talking about a program led by a legend and Bobby Bowden, and how to best go about 
giving him the help he needed, um, you know, it was my opinion at the time that uh, age and, and, and some of the advancements of the game uh, had led Bobby to be less effective. And so, uh, you know, it was always a tough sort of balancing act to be critical of a living legend and a, a super kind man, uh, a beloved, uh, iconic figure. Uh, and so it was really difficult, but I, but I thought the only way this is going to work is, is either they get him some help and they start looking to the future um, and, and bringing some people who are forward thinking and, and can, can kind of advance the program away from some of these antiquated ways of thinking and working. And so the buildup is finally they make the decision that they're going to hire uh, Jimbo Fisher. He's going to come over from LSU uh, where he was OC for Nick Saban. And people forget they had had a couple of different seasons in which um, they had set SEC records. So I, I thought he was perfect given his background, uh, given some of his connections uh, to the Bowdens. Um, and, and I really liked his overall philosophy at the time. Um, you know, I thought he was a guy that wanted to push the ball down the field, but still believed in being physical and all that. So they make the announcement and everybody is wondering who's going to get an opportunity to talk to him. And, I got lucky in a sense. I'll give credit where credit's due. Gene Williams, I think, had gotten his number from his brother or something like that, from Jimbo's brother, I, something like that. And it just the timing wasn't going to work out for Jimbo Fisher to be able to talk at the time I think that they were going to talk. And so I, I had this number, and, and then they had given the station uh, the number as well. And the next thing you know, uh, I'm saying to my producer, Matt Millar, I'm like, we – I got the guy's number. I, 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 I can call Jimbo Fisher like right now. And he's like, yeah, do you think we should do it? You know, I mean, wasn't the uncle or whoever it was going to call you first and all this other stuff. I said, no, let's screw it. Let's get the, get the tape recorder going. It was the DAT player at the time. I said, get it going. I'm going to call him. So I call his house, his residence. And these are the days where everybody does indeed have a house phone. And I call and it rings and rings and rings and the voicemail picks up, the answering machine picks up. And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, damn, I'm not going to get him. And so I start to leave a message explaining who I am and <laughs> the number he could call back. And I'd like to do this interview. And all of a sudden I hear, hello, hey, hey, this is Jimbo, this is Jimbo. And I'm, <laughs> he's like <laughs> frantic. <laughs> and I'm like, coach. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> He sounds so pressed for time. And what we later learned, well, that's just kind of partly how he always talked, um, <laughs> was was rapidly. But and he's, he's, it's, I, I could just picture the scene like there's stuff all over the house and he's trying to get out the door and he's excited. And at the same time, he's got movers there and you can just hear it. It's nuts. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, well, coach, coach, uh, I'm, I'm with a local radio station in Tallahassee. I'm the afternoon host. Uh, you know, I give him my credentials basically. So he knows I'm not some kook and he's like, well, we, we can do it right now. Let's go do it right now. And, <laughs> and so I realized like, Oh, yeah, this is it. I got to do it. And so I started talking to him and he is, you know, long story short, there was a lot kind of discussed there. I asked him about his philosophy. I asked about the move. I asked about all these things, but he was so engaging and so excited and willing really to talk about every aspect of his offensive philosophy he was willing to talk about why he was making the move and how excited he was to come to Tallahassee. And that was it. That was the interview. And I had it and I ran it and obviously it was a good get. Um, and then I think the other thing was that it established a kind of a early on 
uh, a connection between me and him that would further uh, our working relationship later on. Because when he finally gets to Tallahassee, I'm trying to do a weekly interview after each game. Uh, and, and a lot of people used to say, well, why don't you have Coach Bowden on? Well, Coach Bowden was not a big fan of mine uh, at that time because I had been so critical. Now, to his credit, he was always very professional, and I can understand why he was not a fan of my show. Um, look, I'm on the air every day ripping his son. Um, it's got to be difficult. That's kind of the problem with hiring. That's kind of the problem with nepotism is that it's never the hiring, it's the firing. And it's got to be very difficult if you're the head coach to, to even if it's third person and you hear from other people, hey, there's this guy on every afternoon that is just killing your son on the air. Um, and, and then later on, I went from ripping Jeff Bowden to, to saying, well, ultimately, it's not Jeff's fault. Coach Bowden, Bobby Bowden hired him. And we got to look at the guy who made the hire. And we had those conversations. So he really wasn't basically going to talk to me every day. Uh, or once a week anymore. Uh, the, the relationship was fractured. Um, and so the other part of that was, frankly, I knew that Coach Bowden wasn't going to be calling plays. I knew he hadn't in a long time. So I would rather, frankly, talk to Jimbo Fisher in that moment because there's a guy that could explain why they called, what they called, and when they called it. And and so I was looking to foster that relationship. And I think because I was the first to talk to him hmm. when he got hired, you know, he, he at least knew my name. And then we kind of pursued, I pursued it through other avenues and back channels to try to get a weekly interview with him and, and ultimately was successful in doing so. So you were hesitant to do with that with Coach Bowden because, you know, you were, you were being critical of him and that's completely understandable. Then you jump headfirst into, into, you know, having a personal relationship with Jimbo. And of course that went well for years but at a certain point, I mean, you had to be critical of Jimbo as well. So did, was there a, was there, I mean, I'm sure there was, but was that, when did you first realize that it was going to be tough to be critical of Jimbo with your relationship with him? Okay. Well, I will say this. Uh, one thing that I've really tried to do over the years, and it can be a dicey and, and delicate balance mm -hmm. is I've stayed, I've tried to stay clear of being friends. You know, I, there are people in the coaching industry. I'm sure Josh, you have this, Brendan, you too, that you eventually, you do become friends with. You just, you talk enough to them. You, you have enough kind of personal conversations away from your profession to where you could say at the very least, you're friendly acquaintance. And mm -hmm. when that happens, it can be very difficult to, to really, you know, lampoon something that they've done. But if you keep a healthy distance I, and, and they understand the nature of what you do and you keep in mind the nature of what they do, I think both parties can move forward even in the midst of criticism. But I think they should. I think they should. Yes. And in a perfect world, the things that you're saying are 100% factual However, having been in this industry for 15 years and having tried to foster those business type relationships where you think that everything is just the way you said it, when it when when the rubber meets the road, though, and this stuff actually happens, I feel like there's often a, um, you know, a sense of, well, Jeff, I gave you this access. So, you, you know, and sometimes it's implied it's not said, but like, Jeff, I gave you this access. How could you say this about me? Were there any moments like that? Sure. 
So that that did become um, a really tough uh, set of circumstances. Mm-hmm. I, I, here's what I came to, here's what I came to understand. It didn't take long. Uh, early in the process, there was a, I'll tell you when it really happened, when it really, the first time I, I realized that he was sensitive to the kind of criticism you're referencing, Josh, mm-hmm. was I, I knew that Christian Ponder had not practiced the week of the Boston college game. And I had people there telling me on a daily basis, you know, we all have sources. And my source was telling me Christian Ponder's not out here throwing passes. Mm-hmm. And he, he had a bad shoulder. And Coach Fisher had said something to the press after a practice in which he alluded to Christian Ponder playing, practicing, and that he was a full go. Well, okay. The, you know, years later, I think back on that now, people would say, well, he was lying. Well, gamesmanship is a part of coaching. You're not going to tell the other team that your starting quarterback might not be playing if there's a chance he's going to play. Mm-hmm. So I don't look at I don't look at it as lying, but I have a job to do as well, and part of that is to inform uh, the you know my collective audience as to what possibly could take place on this upcoming Saturday. And Coach Fisher saying one thing that Christian Ponder's a full go, and I've got people telling me he hasn't practiced. Well, I went with it. I went with early in the week. There's a chance he won't play. I'm not saying he won't, but he's not practicing. Well, Jimbo took that as an affront to his character. He basically took it to mean that I was calling him a liar, which is ridiculous. Because it's truthful. Like he actually wasn't practicing. He really wasn't practicing. And here's the funny part about it. Jimbo Fisher's not listening to the Jeff Cameron show. Right. Somebody had to go and tell him that, that I said that. And I know who that somebody was. But it's neither here nor there. That person went and said this. And... He ends up calling me, and he's enraged. And I don't know that he's enraged until the moment we're about to do an interview. And the <laughs> this is funny. Well, this uh, is like 2011. This is early in your yeah, relationship it, with him. Oh, yeah, really early in the relationship. So, but, but it ends up working out, though, because I'll tell you what's funny about it. Bob Thomas calls me. He used to be the guy that called me. He works at Florida State, yeah. for those that don't know. And, 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 uh, Bob calls me to tell me Jimbo's ready to do the interview. The way we used to do it in those days was that Jimbo would be, would come into his office and we had a set time to do the interview. He rarely kept the set time, but anyhow. Um, <laughs> so I would be sitting in the studio waiting on him. And then Bob would call me and tell me, Hey, he's ready. And Bob mm-hmm. would like prep it. You know, Jimbo would be coming in and getting changed or whatever he was doing. And Bob would call over to the studio and I'd answer. And, and I, I think enough time has passed that I can give credit where credit's due. Bob and I are friends. And Bob says, Coach, Bob and I used to shoot the shit uh, when he would call me. And, and, and as, he, as we waited for Jimbo, and Jimbo would be like getting a bite to eat, getting changed, and Bob would be telling me what he's doing. Well, Bob is trying to give me a, a heads up that this isn't going to go well. And he calls me, and I pick up, and, and he says, Coach Fisher is ready to do the interview, Jeff. <laughs> and it's just like that. Like, like absurd, right? Like almost like, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's an automated voice. So I'm like, hey, Bob, how are you? He goes, Coach Fisher will be with you in a moment, Jeff. And <laughs> I know at that point, at that point, something I know was weird. Jimbo's in the room. Yeah, something's weird, but I also know Jimbo's in the room. 
And, and so I'm like, yeah, okay. What's up, man. And I'm still trying to fish for what's going on. And in the background, I, I, you know, I'll have to be careful here. If you guys have to beep this out, I, I can please go it. ahead. Go for it. Okay. All right. So in the background, Coach Fisher goes, you got that on the phone? <laughs> and, <laughs> and so I hear it. I hear him say it. And I'm like, and, and Bob goes, yes, Coach Fisher, Jeff Cameron's ready for you. And it's, <laughs> it's just straight down the, I mean, it's ridiculous, right? And so he picks up the phone and says, hello. And I said, hey, Coach Fisher. And then he immediately says, don't you hate Coach Fisher, me? And then just, boom, launches into a tirade. And he's telling me that, you know, don't I ever question his integrity again? And I have no idea why he's saying don't question his integrity, don't call him a liar. I've never called him a liar. I didn't call him a liar. I didn't question his integrity. None of those things happened on the air. It becomes apparent to me while he's yelling at me that he didn't hear the segment that's being referenced, he heard what the person who relayed the story to him told him about the segment. I then, after I'm listening to him berate me for, you know, 10 minutes, I finally get up enough courage to kind of interrupt him and say, whoa, coach, coach. And then he stops. And I said, I've got the segment you're referencing on that tape. I can drive it over right now to campus We'll sit down in your office and listen to it together. And you tell me what I said that was wrong. And he, he, he kind of paused. And then he said, who's your source? <laughs> and then I didn't, I said, coach, you know me better than that. You know, I'm not going to give up my source. Just like uh, you're Jimbo not going to tell me that too. That's a, that's a nerve wracking yeah. question coming from him. It is. And he asked it in such a way that, yes, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's intimidating. Who's uh, your source? He threatened, yeah, who's your source? And then he says that he's going to fire whoever that is, that he'll find out who it is. And if that mm -hmm. person is within the administration or on his staff or is one of his players, you know, the, the, the ramifications are going to be pretty steep, right? Mm -hmm. And I just remained adamant that I was not going to tell him who my source was. And I said, Coach, I'm not going to tell you who my source was. And so long story short, I give him credit because at the end of all of that, he says, uh, all right, let's go. Let's do the interview. And I said, you still want to do the interview? Do you want to take some time to cool off? You said, we could do this interview tomorrow. Uh, he said, no, 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 I'm a pro. You're, we can do the damn interview. Let's go. And I, I, I counted down and started the interview, and it was as if everything that just happened in the 20 minutes prior to us talking did not happen. He he, he acts like he can't wait to talk to me. We do the interview. As soon as the interview's over, I, I thank him for the interview, as I always did on the way out. He just hangs up the phone. Mm -hmm. So in my head, in my head, I'm thinking that might be the last interview we ever do. The next week, Bob calls for us to do the next interview, and he's really relaxed, and he's like, Coach Fisher's ready for you. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I'm thinking, hmm, this will be interesting. He picks up the phone and is like, hey, boy, how you doing? <laughs> and it's like we didn't just have a knockdown drag out argument and that he didn't call me every name on, under the sun. And then I learned, okay, so if you, A, stand up for yourself, and B, if, you, you know, if you're diligent that, hey, this information is factual, 
I, I have it on a reliable source that this happened. Uh, and then long story short, you know, from that point forward, I think standing up to him gave him maybe a measure of respect, at least professionally, for what I did. And we really never had any problem that I thought would lead to us not doing further interviews. Now, we had problems later on where he didn't like what I said. He didn't appreciate criticism. And he would tell me, you know, his side of the story. And I said, well, part of the purpose of doing these interviews, coach, is always to give your side, your thought process. I'm not telling you that I'm right. I'm paid to give an opinion. I give that opinion. If you vehemently disagree or have something to add to the conversation, that's why we're talking. And I think he, he got that. The only time things got ugly was at the very, very, very end. And at that point, he was basically armed with a blowtorch and was angry at Florida State yeah. University. And he was angry at everybody that had anything to do with Florida State University. And that included the surrounding media and anybody mm-hmm. in it. I think uh, that interaction that you had with him um, was a was a very familiar interaction that went on within the Moore Center. Um, just the way Jimbo Fisher being from West Virginia, uh, the way he used to handle things. I mean, you know, James Coley and Eddie Grant and Mark Stoops, all those guys were fiery. I, I could just imagine how many blow ups they would have within a meeting room or on the practice field, yell at each other just like that, and then turn around and say, hey, boy, how you doing? What, what, what you got going right. on over here? You know, <laughs> like, yep. and just move on. No, yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. And Monk Bonasort really helped with all that, because uh, later on, when Monk became his guy, mm-hmm. um, you know, I know you guys know this, but like, I, I, I First of all, I've known Monk forever. I used to do the Seminole pregame show, the official Seminole pregame show, host communication across the state. I did it with Monk Montessori. I hosted it, and we were on in every market in the, in, the, in the state that carried Florida State football. And I got to know him exceptionally well. That's way back when I first started. We're, we're talking about uh, 99, 2000, 2001, mm-hmm. and those times. I'm doing these things across the state, and – I'll tell you what, it was uh, an eye-opening experience. It was a lot of fun to do, but it helped me forge a relationship with Monk. And then years later, that really uh, aided in my efforts to kind of, I guess, get Jimbo Fisher to understand my perspective. And then Monk would tell me his perspective and the stuff that he was dealing with. And it really, I think that it helped the process. What do you think? made Jimbo great before we, we talk about the final years of Jimbo and everything, but when you first met Jimbo and, and kind of comparing him to Mike Norvell, maybe in a way, but what was it about Jimbo that you saw that you knew, you know, we might have one here? Well, I thought he certainly had the, um, acumen, intelligence and work ethic to make it work. Uh, he was tireless. He desperately wanted to win. He desperately wanted to apply what he had learned, whether it had been at Sanford or Auburn or Cincinnati or LSU. He wanted to take that knowledge, a lot of it from Nick Saban, obviously, and apply it to this program. And he knew that if he were going to get it turned around, he would have to be a tireless worker and recruiter. He was an elite recruiter. You know that. So the ability to bring in and upgrade talent immediately was something that gave me pause to think Florida State is going to be good again and soon. Uh, To convince kids, uh, I always thought that his ability as a talent evaluator and his ability to project in the future what that body type within his system could do 
was his greatest asset. He could look at a kid. He could be, you know, he could be somewhere looking at one kid and then spot another, the famous Devonta Freeman story, right? He, he could do that looking around the practice field or at a game on a Friday night, and he could see a kid that he was there to watch and then look over there on the other side and say, who's that kid? And then kind of have an idea that that kid was going to grow into a 240-pound linebacker and that he had the feet and the football acumen to make the change from whatever position he was playing in high school to what he's going to see him as in college. And I thought that was a huge gift, a, a great strength, uh, and a huge asset. And he, he had that, and he was tireless, and he was willing to go to war to flip the roster. Um, so I thought early on that was really something that stood out. Like he was always there. He was always working. I always used to wonder when he would sleep. Um, I think, I think you could see it, right? I mean, it's the very thing that probably, uh, led to kind of burnout to some extent. Um, you know, he just couldn't, I don't know. It was tough for him to slow down and morph into other aspects of who he was. Um, it was tough for him to, to kind of take off his work hat and, and be this other guy that occasionally I got a glimpse of. Um, and I think that's the hardest part about that profession to begin with is that you, you know, you're burning the candle bright, man. But at some point you wear everybody else out around you and you wear yourself out and relationships are fractured. But I think early on, you've got to have a guy who's that kind of motivated, who, who has a desperate need to prove himself, who is willing to invest everything he has in the turnaround of a program. And in that sense, I do believe Mike Norvell has that. All right. So before we kind of fin- put the finishing touches here on on Jimbo and his tenure, Jeff, you mentioned uh, it was a blowtorch as you described the end of Jimbo Fisher's uh, the way he was working with people at FSU, surrounding media. And I remember, man, like I would drive to those press conferences on Monday and I would listen to the podcast version of your interview with Jimbo that you would do, uh, mainly because it would give me kind of a glimpse into like what his talking points were going to be for that week. Uh, kind of what mood yep, he was yep. in. Uh, but man, I remember some of those answers he would give you got so bizarre at the end where he was accusing you of say like the down and distance. Like you said, Oh, why didn't you go for it on fourth and one? He was like, well, it was actually three yards away where everyone could see right. it was clearly like half a yard away. Like it wasn't something to debate. Uh, and I guess, so my question here for you, Jeff is as you're dealing with someone who isn't making a lot of sense in their answers, who's coming at things from what seems like an emotional standpoint, what is your, role as you view it as the as the host as the person asking the questions and i know you got criticism from some people saying oh you should correct him at that time or or you should be combative or like ask these harder questions uh and that i know you've said before you don't feel like is your role so maybe you define like why what your role is and as someone who asks questions professionally and, and why you approached it the, the end of the jimbo era the, the, the way you did i think you give the person, the opportunity to respond to whatever the critical moments of the game were and the decisions that were made. If their response is nonsensical, you give the audience enough credit to understand that (laughs) and to pick up on that. And you, in essence, give them the opportunity to um, impugn themselves. And it's not my job to antagonize. It's not my job to, uh, to bait. It's not my job to attempt to create 
what we see uh, in the for-profit, um, quote-unquote, fear and consumption sort of media that exists of today, which is that you've got one guy in a square on the right side who believes one thing, one guy in a square on the left side who believes one thing, and the guy in the middle antagonizes them enough so that they scream at each other, and it's a red background, and everybody goes, oh, oh, and it's titillating, whatever, but it's not news. That's not really what we do. And so, in my opinion, I was always going to ask the question, He's going to give whatever answer he's going to give, and that should suffice for an intelligent audience. And I think the biggest mistake that any of us make in media is perhaps not giving our readers or listeners enough credit. We're not playing to the smartest person in the room all the time. We're oftentimes playing uh, to, to the least intelligent amongst us, and that's not what you do. Most people are smart enough to pick up on the mistakes made by anybody for that matter. And in the, in the case of football, you're talking about a group of people and a fan base that's passionate. Most of whom grew up playing the game, watching the game, investing their time and efforts and understanding the game. They can see when a guy is exhibiting uh, erratic behavior or if a guy outright lies uh, or gives a less than truthful answer uh, about uh, a set of circumstances. So there was no need for me to follow up and, and criticize. I also knew that what's the point of that? If I, if I say to him, coach, why didn't you think about going for it on fourth and one? And he says to me, well, it wasn't fourth and one, which is what he said. And, and I say, well, all right, fourth and two, I tried to give him a benefit of the doubt. And then he fall, he doubled down. He doubled down with the absurdity <laughs> and said, no, no, it was more like fourth and three. And of course, we all know it wasn't fourth and three. We're not I, dumbasses. We're I remember, <laughs> Jeff, I remember where I was in my car when he said that, and I nearly spent – I was going to McDonald's to get a soda to drive into the building and or to go to the press conference. I almost spit it out because I was like, he's losing it. Like, There's no way yeah. that it was even close to that measurement. No, and it made no sense, and, he, and, and I, he knew it. That's why he was defensive, and that's why he tried to make an excuse. So I don't need to – I drew it out of them already. I did mm-hmm. my job. The people got the answer. They know that's absurd. They know that's ridiculous. What a ridiculous thing to say. It's like telling people you practice uh, the play against Virginia uh, <laughs> where you, you purposely have Burt Reed drop the ball. We practice that. We practice it all the time. No, you don't. You've never practiced that in your life. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> so you know, it's not my job to follow up and attack him in that case because he's already made, you know, he's already made his point. It's an absurd point, and the audience is smart enough to know that. So I, I, that's why I'm not there to debate him. I'm there to ask the question, and he can answer it as he wants. And I think that's true of journalism in general. I, you ask the question. Now, you can ask a follow-up. You can say definitively you know, that there was four minutes and 32 seconds on the clock, Coach, at the time of that. But not, no, 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 six minutes, Coach. There was four minutes and 32 seconds. I would ask that you check the tape. That said – your decision to punt or do whatever you did. You know what I'm saying? That you can do that. You can, you can make it clear for on the record purposes that you think one thing, he thinks another, or here is a fact that he is now uh, eschewing that, that that's fine. You can do that. But if I, if I antagonize and debate and go full bore with him in an argumentative manner, well, the interview's over. It's it's it. I mean, I'm not going to get anything of any merit from that point forward because now it's turned into an emotional slugfest. And moreover, I'm likely risking uh, down the line any more interviews. And I owe it to my audience to have these interviews with the head coach. 
Did did you feel? No, we've talked a lot about some of the absurdity of Jimbo uh, throughout the time that you, or throughout your time covering him. Did you feel bad at all the way like the franticness that you saw at the end? Like, were there any kind of concerns or signs of like, okay, this isn't like a way people normally act? I know for me, I in hindsight, I feel that way, uh, but I didn't certainly at the time. It was more just kind of rolling my eyes at him being a lunatic, really. Well. I'll give you some other insight here real quick. Um, Jimbo, for, for people listening to this, who might think that it's incredibly one-sided, I saw good sides of Jimbo Fisher, up close and personal. Uh, my youngest son, and this will be hard, but my youngest son got sick and had to be rushed to Shans a number of years ago. Um, and it was a scary time. It was a blood disorder, and he could die. Nobody can until until it happens. Nobody's prepared for that, and uh, certainly that describes me and my wife. We rushed to Shans. We were there for I think five days, might have been four days, and the doctors. Uh, uh, were able to um, to help my son, obviously. And it was touch and go for a time. Um, I don't want to make it more dramatic than it was. That in and of itself is uh, obvious, I think, just the nature of, of what was going on and having to be rushed to Shands. Um, Jimbo Fisher called me. He found out through uh, a mutual uh, friend, um, and he called me and left a long voicemail message um, in which he was Jimbo Fisher, the person. Uh, he, I called him back. We talked. Every interview subsequent to that stretch of time in my son's life, um, every interview we did after that, he would begin the conversation by asking me how Clark, that's my youngest son's name, how Clark was doing. And I would ask him about his children, and we would talk about the situation, obviously, uh, that he and his wife were going through and how difficult that was. And we would compare notes and talk about uh, what was happening, and, and he was giving in that way. And I would oftentimes be buoyed by the information he was sharing about what they were learning and the progress they were making. And there was another side of Jimbo Fisher. That guy existed. He's, he, he, he had a heart. And, and he cared. Uh, and, and I saw that side of him. So I told you that to tell you this, obviously my son's fine. Now everything worked out. It's, um, it's, it's interesting to kind of reflect in that moment. I wasn't necessarily prepared to do that, but that said, um, because I saw that side of him, I did feel bad because I knew somewhere in there was this other guy and he was going through what quite clearly was, in my mind, um, borderline a nervous breakdown. Uh, I thought that uh, things had culminated in a way that uh, you were seeing the worst sides of Jimbo Fisher, a panicked, angry, distraught, tired, beleaguered, however you want to describe it, individual. And that's the guy that wasn't making sense. That's the guy that was paranoid. That's the guy that kind of had his, had his guard raised, right, at all times. Mm -hmm. 
he he thought everybody was out to get him. Mm-hmm. It got to a point where he thought I was out to get him. He thought you were out to get him. He thought anybody who was in the media was out to get him. He thought anybody at Florida State University that had the university's best interest in mind and not what Jimbo Fisher wanted was the enemy. He despised the boosters. He despised the administration. He was fried. And he was done with all of it. And he was beginning to shirk his responsibilities. He was, I think, guilty of a dereliction of duty. But to answer your question, I certainly did at times feel bad for him because I, I knew there was another side. I knew in there was a good man um, because I had, I had seen it. And so, yes, I did feel bad. Uh, now, listen, it doesn't forgive or excuse some of the ridiculous things that he said and did. It certainly doesn't mean that he wasn't guilty of turning his back on the program and the kids that he coached because he is guilty of that. Uh, the duality of that is interesting, but in truth, you know, we engage too often, in my opinion, in heroification of all people. Everybody's got a little something in them that is off-putting for all of us. Everybody also, I think, unless you're a sociopath, has an awful lot of good in them as well, and they're fully capable of engaging those two parts of themselves uh, at the same time in the same week. So I just think that, you know, ultimately he did a lot of things really well for Florida State won a national championship, recruited, cared about the kids, was fully engaged and invested, got the program back on the map, modernized it, really, really forward, uh, forwarded its efforts to be elite again. And he also is the same guy that, upon doing so, became a paranoid nightmare. Uh, and we can talk about the factors that led up to that, and we sort of have here today. But that, to me, was who he was by the time he left. It's, it's crazy as we dive into these stories about Jimbo, how it feels like it was just yesterday that we, we all were covering the program and, and the things uh, that went on with Jimbo and dealing with him personally and all that. And um, it seems like it was just yesterday, but can you believe that the Willie Taggart era has already come and gone? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know it's, it's nuts. Uh, All of this, you cannot imagine. Like, so we all in our own way have talked about this on, you know, whether it be a show like this, whether it be those two, four, seven, whether it be on my show, whatever it is. I, I always think like I was standing down on the field. They win the national championship. I walk up to Lawrence Dossey. I've got this picture. Tom Lang took a picture of me and Lawrence Dossey. The team is celebrating, and they're getting ready to organize the whole stage thing where they're going to go up there. Mm-hmm. I'm in awe. I'm listening to the band. I can't believe I'm in the Rose Bowl on the field, that iconic place, St. Gabriel Mountains in the background. Florida State's just won the national championship. I had played in a charity golf tournament earlier that year before the season began with Lawrence Dossie as my partner. So when I saw him, I recalled our conversation about Jameis Winston and about preparations for the year and what he thought would happen and what he hoped would happen. Mm -hmm. And he kind of looked over at me and smiled. And I walked over to him and smiled. And to his credit, he was letting the kids enjoy the moment. He was kind of standing off to the side, a good ways away, about the 20-yard line. And I'm looking and he's looking and he's just shaking his head. And he said, I'm so happy for them. Well, Mm -hmm. that feels like, that feels, that feels like yesterday in some ways. In in some some ways it feels like it was 30 years ago. Light years ago, right? Mm -hmm. You're just like, I can't, 
that happened. I covered that. I also mm-hmm. covered the following year. It was also down on the field after they got boat raced and all that, right? So all of that happened. And the next thing you know, here we sit, Florida State is largely irrelevant in their own conference. And it just goes to show, and I don't think we should be entirely surprised because we bore witness to the same sort of collapse two hours from Tallahassee. Mm-hmm. I mean, you saw Urban Meyer build a dynasty, a dominant program that wins two national titles and is a threat to win more. And the next thing you know, he's lost the locker room, same way Jimbo lost the locker room. He's inconsistent with which in the ways in which he doles out punishment or discipline and kids stop respecting what he's teaching. They turn their back on it. It becomes a nightmare and it all crumbles. We saw it happen with Urban Meyer and, you know, we kind of, if you're a knoll, chuckled. We looked at that in glee and said, good, couldn't happen to a better guy. Get the hell out of here. Well, you know, the same thing happened here. It happened just like that. So, yeah, it's hard to believe. It is hard to believe. <laughs> and from that point moving forward, you just know that when you're devoid of hope and you look at Clemson and the juggernaut that they've become, you just have to remind yourself that in college football, things can change very quickly. Yeah. One loss of personnel. It's one poor decision. It's one misstep. It's one public comment. It's one controversial uh, off the field incident. It's any one of these things that become the impetus for a massive drop off. And we've, we've seen it here. We saw it in Gainesville. We've seen it other places. So I think that if you're a Florida state fan, you're just hoping that this program gets built back up, obviously to a point to take advantage of something like that, but you're holding out hope that that happens at Clemson. As for Willie Taggart, I was on the record. I certainly don't want to uh, engage in revisionist history. I was on the record as saying I thought it was a great hire, and I was wrong. Uh, All of us who were in that camp, anybody who believed it was a good hire, turned out that we could not have been more wrong. Uh, There were things that I did not know about Coach Taggart's uh, time at USF or Oregon that I later found out that would have maybe informed the conversation a little differently. Um, but at the time I wasn't armed with that knowledge and it's a lesson to be learned for me and, and, and anybody else who thought that they knew for certain that that was going to be a great hire. It turned out it certainly wasn't. Um, I don't have a personal problem with coach Taggart at mm-hmm. all. Uh, he was very professional with me. Uh, we got along swimmingly every time I spoke to him. Uh, but obviously he did a terrible job here. He did a terrible job in surrounding himself with people that could have aided his ability to get this program back to where it needed to be. I think he was um, in over his head. Uh, they were disorganized. Everybody knows that. And as it turns out, it was a disastrous hire. Uh, and now, you know, you reboot. But anytime you do that and you're going through coaches the way Florida State's going through coaches, you really can't expect the turnaround to be very quick because mm-hmm. you really lost your ability to uh to, bounce to re- back to recruits and have yeah and trust you yeah it, it's gonna be tough yeah it's not real elastic at this point um mm-hmm. i was i was certainly in the camp with you when when willie taggart arrived that you know this was a good hire um i knew willie taggart personally never thought i was gonna ever cover him at florida state um so we had you know more of a friendly friendly relationship not so business-like but there came a time and point where i you know, had seen enough. And I made the decision to, to, to say publicly that I did not think my, my stance was, um, and this came after signing day after his first season. But I said, 
I do not believe Willie Taggart is going to turn Florida State around. I do not think that Willie Taggart should be fired today. I think he should get his time, which at the time was three years. Um, But, you know, in my personal opinion, I do not think Willie Taggart is the man for the job. So the easy answer is to say that you knew this at the Virginia Tech game. But at what point were you willing and confident enough to say publicly that you did not believe Willie Taggart was going to make it at Florida State? Yeah, and you know, there are so many other elements to this too, Josh, right? I mean, let's mm-hmm. not pretend there's not a race element to all this. And and so I was always mindful of that. I, I was mindful of history. I efforted to be fair. I also knew what a disaster he inherited. I don't think a lot of people really realized. I know you did. I know Brendan did. Anybody on the beat, anybody who covered the program recognized that by the end of Jimbo Fisher's tenure, that program was completely fractured. Yeah. So I recognize that he inherited a mess. I recognize that there was an element, a very small element. I don't want to paint with a broad brush here, but there was a small contingent of the fan base that didn't want a blackhead coach. And I always have been one to kind of, you know, I mean, it may sound pompous, but certainly champion for more progressive ways of thinking. And I, and I, I wanted him to make it for all kinds of reasons. Namely, I'm a knoll, but I, I wanted to see this thing get turned around. He's a nice man, and mm-hmm. he had had success. So I thought, okay, you've got to give this guy wiggle room. You've got to give this guy, even if you're looking at mistakes and you're seeing things that are alarming, that raise the flag, right? Huh, this is raise your antennas. I saw those things, and I thought, all right, well, that, that's not good. I'm going to need to change that. Um, I think we were all somewhat taken aback the first time we witnessed practice, there's a whole lot of standing around. Um, and it didn't get much better. Uh, but then I thought, you know what? You're used to the way Jimbo Fisher conducted practice, constant mm-hmm. motion. Everybody's doing something at all. Maybe, you know what? His way is not the only way. Let's see. Let's see what becomes of this. And I understood he was trying to build up trust and, and engender sort of uh, a renewed confidence and belief and all of that. And so I thought, okay, maybe the on the field product's going to suffer a little bit while he forges this relationship, gets this group back together. I was always willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. In truth, I was completely appalled by the Syracuse game in the Carrier Dome. Um, I remember being absolutely just gobsmacked. I could not believe what we were witnessing. That was a level of incompetence at a program as he leads Florida State that you never picture a scene. You never think you're going to see something that looks that bad, where the decisions are that poor, where the disorganization is that obvious. And yet still, Josh, I still didn't call for his job then. I still thought, okay, these are these are tough, tough losses to take and embarrassing, but he's surely going to learn mm-hmm. that he's got to make some adjustments on his staff. He's got to take more control of what's happening in the meetings. He's going to have to spend more hours in his office. He's going to have to really understand that we have to ratchet up what we're doing organizationally because this reeks of a disorganized mess. So I gave him the benefit of the doubt even then. And I don't think it was until early, I I don't know, maybe, I I don't remember the day, I'd have to go back and check the tapes, but somewhere in that second season, probably the Virginia game, I sat on the 50-yard line for that Virginia game, Florida State had better players than Virginia, period, better players, and obviously, I also was in attendance for the Miami game, in which they blow that huge lead, and 
There's a lot of asinine decisions that are made there. I mean, God, we can go back and find any number of games, right, where we're scratching our head. But I, I think it might have been the Virginia game that, you know, that I kind of thought, okay, well, we're done here. This is, this is going to work. <laughs> and I certainly walked out of the stadium uh, right after the Miami game. I, I, mm-hmm. My dad comes to all the games, and a lot of times I stand on the roof to watch the games. And I left the Miami game early. Wow. I've, I've, not, I've never done that. Yeah, I left the game early. I didn't need to see the rest of this. We were being, Florida State was being manhandled. Uh, there was, it was an embarrassment. They weren't prepared. There was no chance Florida State was going to win that game, and there they were at home against an ass-sorry Miami team who made Florida State look miles beneath them. And I just walked out. I, it was, uh, I think, midway through the third quarter. I was like, okay, I'm done. I'll rewatch this on Sunday because I have to talk about it on Monday, but I'm not going to sit here and bear witness to this. And so when I got home, my dad says to me, as he gets home after the game, do you think they fire him? And you know what? I hadn't thought about it. I thought they were forced to just kind of wear it for the rest of that year and maybe even another year. Wow. And that was the first time that I thought, you know, they might. They yeah. have no choice right now. They might, they might have to fire him. That was, that was an embarrassment of riches, right? I mean, you just watched the kind of, I guess, just absolute um, inadequate preparation, execution, the sort of uh, impotence that you just don't expect to see at Florida State. And when that happened, I, I, yeah, I guess I thought it, it's possible. But I can't, I can't pinpoint the moment I thought that's it, it's over. I, maybe the Virginia game. Uh, for me, Jeff, the Miami game this past season was when I first publicly said, okay, I, I don't think he's – or I didn't say I think. I said I'm confident he's not going to get it done at this point. That's when I was able to like put my name to it. The two moments I had, though, and I'm going to bring these up because I, I, you've discussed at various points both of these timelines uh, that gave me pause when we've reflected on like what went wrong with Willie Taggart. The two areas that I look at – one is just the complete recruiting blunders, like on visit weekends and stuff. And, and last yep. year's yep. spring game was one of those moments for me. So I would want to get your thoughts on, because I know you've, you've hinted at hearing about that a little bit in the past. Mm-hmm. And then and then the other one for me was the Notre Dame game in 2018. Uh, uh, for me, I knew that <laughs> I knew what was going to happen with the quarterback position going into the game, but it was such a cluster going into that week with him not making a decision with the team not knowing and they settle on DeAndre Francois, and he comically throws an interception, what, the second play of the game. Uh, and I know you've talked about this before, Jeff, of hearing disorganization leading up to that game as well. I, I think you were unfairly credited as, like, reporting it when you said it was more rumors. So I want to give you the, the platform to talk about the cluster that you at least heard. And I don't know if you ended up hearing, uh, confirming it, but that there was a lot of disorganization going into that game. So th- those two things, please, the, the Notre Dame game and then just the recruiting cluster one weekend after another. I'll give you guys credit and my friend Chris Nee a lot of credit. Um, I talked to Chris. Chris and I go back. Uh, I remember when he first got on the beat. Um, obviously, back to me being an old man, I've watched all of you come on the beat. <laughs> <laughs> I've watched, I've watched the emergence of every one of your careers. Uh, um, but Chris uh, and I have always gotten along and um, he would, we'd see each other out socially occasionally and maybe share a, an adult beverage or two and compare notes. And um, I remember one time because I, I, I make the, listen, this is uh this is transparent. Anybody who listens to me knows it, but if you, if you don't know who I am, I, I will say openly now on this podcast, I, I don't 
follow recruiting the way that, that you guys do. And thank goodness you do. Thank goodness that uh, your website and your staff do such a good job of doing it because it, it, it enables me to inform myself um, on that aspect that is vital to programs success. But I have friends across the board and, in, 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 you know, on every site that covers Florida state recruiting. And I consider you guys friends and I consider certainly Chris Nia friend and, I would just hear people say crazy things about recruiting <laughs> and the disorganization, the mass confusion, the uncertainty uh, of what comes next during their visit. And some of the reports from those visits uh, in which recruits either told you guys or told Chris or somebody else that, you know, it wasn't organized. Well, that was very disconcerting. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I, I was worried about that. I, I also have some friends, obviously, that uh, work over at Florida State, and, you know, we all do. And um, we'd hear stories. We all heard stories, and we'd just kind of roll our eyes and think, if, if, if even one part of that is true, if even 50% of what that person just said to me is 100% accurate, then we've got, you know, we got a problem. Um, the Notre Dame game, I heard Brendan afterwards, um, about a week afterwards, I heard some deeply troubling uh, aspects of preparation and, and some things that maybe didn't happen. Um, and and I, I could never confirm it, and I never did try. I never said that I confirmed it. I said that there were whispers. There were plenty of rumors. Lots of people have heard those rumors that they might have missed or been late to walk through. Um, and so, you know, I'm not trying to dodge your question. I brought that up on the air. People hear what they want to hear. I've learned that over the years. And I think somebody said that I said that 100% they didn't, they didn't go through walkthrough. I, I didn't say that, but, I, but we heard rumors of it mm. and it, they, more importantly, they were the kind of rumors that plagued that coaching staff that really were part and parcel to things we had heard in other games, uh, where they would stay, how far away from the stadium, uh, they would stay at different situations, like mismanagement when it came to travel and preparation was not something new, right? We heard those things. So this just added to that. And, and, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> you just shake your head. I mean, e even if there's, uh, elements of that, that are, that are true or not true, you just, that shouldn't be something that's whispered about a program and a coaching staff ever, ever. Mm -hmm. If you can't get that right, then you're really just a walking disaster. Jeff, we've been going for over an hour, so we thank you and appreciate your time. Um, before I let you go, though, I wanted to ask you just during these times of like quarantine and all that, um, how are you doing? Like as far as the radio show goes, are you guys still doing it five days a week, uh, same amount of time, same hours? Yeah, um, we miss a day here and there. Uh maybe one day a week we'll miss. That's not always a planned thing. There's certain guidelines we have to adhere to from our company. There have been some things that we, that are out of our control where we couldn't do a show. Mm -hmm. um, but it's been my, it's been my thought in my mindset um, to keep working and um, appreciate you asking. Yeah, we're doing all right. I mean, it, it's obviously, this is not easy on anybody. Yeah. And no I'm doubt. very mindful. I'm very mindful of, um, people who have it worse, people who lost their jobs, people who are very scared. Um, you know, I, I've said over the years uh, that that's something that really deeply troubles me is, is to know when people are scared. I don't like it when I see it in people that I love and care for. I don't like it 
uh, in friends, in business. I don't like to see that kind of uncertainty. I can deal with a lot of things. We all can. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, we, we all have to combat certain things in our lives that, uh, that, that, you know, arise and, and we do. Right. But then there are, there are, there are things that elicit fear and I, I always feel very bad. I, it's, it's not a, a comforting feeling to be scared. Um, so I'm really mindful of that. And so I don't want to prattle on about the hardships we're facing, but like everything else, I will say, uh, we're hurting. I mean, this is what we do, right? We may talk about a lot of other things, but we talk about sports and when sports aren't happening, uh, it's very difficult and it's difficult financially for the radio station I work for, for ESPN, mm -hmm. for any, any group that is involved in covering and talking about and engaging in, um, you know, the dissemination of opinion and information about sports. Well, obviously we're all hurting right now mm -hmm. and, um, and that goes for everybody. So, uh, but yeah, we're going to keep doing the show because I think it's important. I think it's important for my own mental health <laughs> selfishly. And I think it's important for people who would want to engage in listening to the show on a regular basis because it's what they did. Maybe it's 15 minutes out of their day. Maybe it's a podcast where they go on a long walk. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's their morning um, where they sit down and they, they, they work, but they listen to elements of the show. I want to provide that for them. It's what we do. I don't know how to do anything else, frankly. Um, and so we're just going to keep on doing that. Does being in quarantine, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll just say it. You're an old man. You know, you might not be hip to everything. You, Jesus. You're... Wow. <laughs> well, look, wow. Brendan, I, I definitely couldn't go on Jeff's show and ask him this question. Yeah, it, I got to ask him Je now. Jeff, he's talking trash while you're quarantined. You can't drive down to St. Pete and beat that ass. So no, do it, no, do it in I town. What I'm, what I'm going to get to is, <laughs> is not talking trash. What I'm going to get to is, does this show you that, like, Maybe I don't need ESPN. Maybe I don't need to be in a studio every day to pull this off. Maybe just being Jeff Cameron and just doing what I want to do when I want to do it with no restraints. You know, you've been in this industry for, for almost 30 years and you've built a brand and you've built a following. Does this quarantine kind of give you the idea that, hey, maybe I could just do this on my own and have more control and all that? Well, I'm fortunate to have a lot of control, and that's been built up with the aforementioned time that I've been in the business. I think if I didn't, I would have walked a long time ago, but I was given that freedom when I signed my contract, uh, what is it, seven years ago now, six years ago now, whatever it is, for, with ESPN. When I signed my second contract with ESPN, uh, I actually asked for certain um, parameters to be adjusted where... I had more control of almost every element of my show, and that includes certain aspects of uh, of the money. Um, but if I didn't have that, yes, I would have walked a long time ago. But thankfully, my employers give me an immense amount of freedom. That's good. Uh, but I'm not going to lie; I've thought many times about. Yeah. Uh, yeah, about leaving or about starting a podcast network. Listen. There are so many talented people and so many knowledgeable people and people that I like working with or would like to work with. Uh, I mean, I would love to have, and I thought about it and maybe someday it'll happen. Who knows? And maybe this will be the impetus for that, but I've thought long and hard about a business plan that would have uh, a podcast network, not unlike say Bill Simmons, the ringer or something like that, where I would be an investor and, and, and an owner 
I'd have my show on there with Tom. I'd have Seminole Headlines. I'd have you guys. I'd have Bud Elliott. I'd have all these people that do such a – or anybody that I think does a good job and works hard and knows what the hell they're talking about and are entertaining. I would do it, and I would learn to, to, to meet more people in different markets, and we would incorporate Gainesville, Miami, Orlando, Jacksonville. We would have – There'd be a hockey podcast. There'd be a mm-hmm. Orlando Magic podcast. There would be a podcast for the Lightning, as I just alluded to. But we would cover the Gators, the Knolls, the Canes, UCF, you name it. Nobody really needs to cover South Florida. But we would, <laughs> we would, we would cover um, the programs of note. And, yeah, the big um, three teams all rolled up into one. I like that idea. No, imagine no, that. no imagine plugs. That. No plugs. <laughs> imagine that. Yeah, I was waiting for you. I was like, come on, I'm throwing this softball. <laughs> but here, here's the thing, though. We would we would do that, and it would be a lot of fun to do. Yeah. And, and I, I have thought about that. And there is, and I think you have, I know you have, obviously, I, I have. To, to a certain extent. We all have thought about how would we do it? Who, How would we get paid? How many sponsors could we get to come on board right now? Because the problem with all of that is, you know, uh, there's a there's a salary threshold that you're going to want to make, Josh. And sure. there's a salary threshold for you, Brennan, and for me, and for Tom, and for anybody that we would bring on board. And in the initial stages, I'm not real sure any of us would be able to make what we're accustomed to making. You know, you'd have to probably wear it a little bit for a year or two while you built up the infrastructure and, and, and kind of created, uh, a, a, you know, obviously an element of market share. I've had this conversation so, um, with my coworkers and I have, or with, well, I shouldn't say coworkers, but people that I feel are the voices. And, um, I think if you got a collective of the voices together, it would definitely be possible. Um, it just kind of maybe takes a time like this for everybody to sit back and and understand that, like, you know, I shouldn't say too much on here. Is Josh, Josh, just, <laughs> I, I, Josh I just nicely said that I'm not one of the voices. He just kind of no, I didn't through. say that at all. Because yeah, I've had this did. conversation with you, Brendan. You know I've had this. Yeah, you have. I'm going to have to edit all this out, by the way. <laughs> no, 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 no. None of this is going public. <laughs> no, it just goes to show you that our bosses <laughs> don't listen to the pod. <laughs> hey, hey, what I, what I will say is, uh, you know, you guys – you get your people to call my people and, you know, we'll see what happens. Right. We'll just kind of, we'll start. We, we, we've just uh, floated it to the ether. Who knows? Yeah. Oh, this is a good way to wrap it up. And I was talking to Brendan about this. Um, I've been in the industry now for 15 years. So I'm, I'm finally to the point where in my career, I start to look at things in the decades and you kind of hit on this. Like who would have thought in 2010, the year that I started covering Florida state, and it's now been a decade, but who would have thought I would have been here for the rise of the Jimbo Fisher era, a national championship in just three years to the complete destruction of a program. And I'm sure that you kind of look back at your career the same way. And you got here in 98, 99. So you got the whole 2000s Mm -hmm. decade, the whole 2010s decade here we are 2020 Mike Norvell is about to coach his first game. I mean, can you even imagine what we're going to be sitting here talking about in 2030? No. And the whole thing is absurd. It's so fun. It's a thought (laughs) exercise, right? You can, I, can you believe I feel terrible for Mike Norvell, by the way, Holy Mm -hmm. hell. Can you imagine this? I mean, this is ridiculous. Nobody expects to be waylaid by a freaking pandemic as they try to change culture in a program (laughs) And they get three freaking practices. I, I can't fathom the depths of anger and frustration that he feels. Now, he can never say that publicly, and he has to say, what am I going to do about it and begin the process? But the truth is, in those dark moments when he's sitting there laying in bed, staring at his ceiling, he's got to be thinking, 
well, God damn it. This is the most ridiculous thing that could ever happen as I start my career at Florida State. You know, and he can't say it, but it's absurd. It is. And who and, and what a way to start off the decade. I mean, we just we just spent the the last hour and 15 minutes reminiscing really about the last decade and, and what a crazy one it was. So thank you for joining us. I'm sure we're going to sit down before 2030, but if not, we'll talk to you in 10 years. <laughs> let's not, let's not let 10 years go by. Fellas, uh, I appreciate you. And I, and thanks for having me on and uh, keep doing the great work that you guys do. You as well, Jeff. Thank you. Yeah, you too, dude. Thank you. See ya. Take care guys. Peace. Bye. The great Jeff Cameron, everybody. I'm just mortified of thinking of all the editing I have to do. At the I end don't of think this. there's edit. I mean, there's editing like apologizing, Brendan. <laughs> <laughs> there should be a T-shirt. Uh, Jeff was great. It, uh, yeah, uh, that was exactly what I was hoping it would be and what I thought it would be. Uh, because we started recording so quickly and get her like a chance to set up what I think this series is going to be, Josh, which is Jeff being the first in the line of a few different voices who covered Florida state throughout different periods of its, you know, of, of big moments in program history that we want to get on here. And it's kind of a, also a chance for our listeners to get to meet or get to better, get better acquainted with people on the beat or who've been on the beat or have covered the team. And I think Jeff is a perfect way to start it out. I agree. And um, let's go. No intro. Let's just go right into Jeff Cameron. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, I don't think we have much of a choice. I think that's how we started recording it. So, yeah. yeah. All right, enjoy. Hope you guys enjoyed, I should say. For Brennan Sinone, I'm Josh Newberg. This is On the Bench. Thank you. (laughs) Stick of the landing.